Welcome to For Fintech's Sake. I'm Zach Anderson Pettit, U.S. Content Director at Money 2020, co-founder and hype man for the VSUM community, and most of all, your unqualified host. This week's guest, Don Muir, CEO at ARC. ARC does full-service financing for SaaS companies. The non-dilutive funding wave is here. Speaking of ARCs, how many of these companies can get on the ARC before the flood comes? Just kidding. Mixing all the metaphors now. Apologies. That was horrendous. But why else would you come to this highly informative podcast if not for these deep, deep thoughts? And now, without further ado, welcome my guest, Don Muir. And now we're live. How are you, my friend? Good. Thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to have you on. I mean, your things have been a little wild for you over the last few years, I think. So I appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, definitely. You, it's been a, it's been a yeah, wild ride. Yeah, we're, we're, we're going to get into that ride. Where are you calling from? Right now I'm in San Francisco. We have an office here in Soma on Folsom Street. I love it. I love it. All right. Well, now that I did my COVID question, we can get into the to the real shit. So let's go. Let's go back to the to the Don youth. Tell me. Tell me about your life growing up. Like, were you you know, uh, were you, were you financing other people other people's lemonade businesses uh, with forward looking uh, revenue or anything like that? Like, was that all the way back to your youth? <laughs> it's funny you ask. Uh, growing up, um, I grew up in a real estate household. So I grew up leasing properties, cleaning bathrooms, mopping floors, uh, for, uh, for my family and, um, and definitely, uh, spent a lot of time trying to understand how to make the bottom line meet what it takes, what levers to pull to, uh, to make the math work. So, uh, that was kind of the, the, the very early days back uh, when I was a, a teenager and, and even before that. And take, take me on from there. So, I mean, the, you, you say, you know, it's classic entrepreneurship. You say real estate family and everybody's like, oh, that sounds classy and sexy. And <laughs> not, not quite. Popping floors and whatnot. Yeah. But I mean, the rest of your, you know, the rest of your history thereafter is seemingly sexy as well. But I would imagine there's been some, uh, some floor mopping and whatnot. So, so tell me that story too, like from, from BCG on. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, from the real estate days, I went on to work in the, the, the restaurant industry more broadly. I was a, you know, waiting tables and I was a, a fry cook at a seafood restaurant in Massachusetts growing up, uh, during my summers, uh, after Cornell where I studied finance, um, it was really during the time in those undergrad days where I became pretty passionate about finance and knew that's what I wanted in my career. So after graduating from undergrad, I went on to join a consulting firm, BCG, uh, working in both operations on the advisory side, so advising large multinational corporations on uh, strategic problems du jour. And then uh, about half my time I spent working in the private equity uh, commercial due diligence space. So we would evaluate potential uh, multi-billion dollar transactions for large uh, publicly traded private equity funds in New York. Those were the, the BCG days. Yeah. What was it like going from serving people fried shrimp <laughs> to evaluating gigantic deals? Was that a, I mean, I, I'm halfway kidding, but also, I mean, did, did, was there anything from your serving days that translated into like who you are as a person today. I, I served through college too. And I felt like a very like formative thing for me. So I'm curious if it had that kind of impact on you. Yeah. A couple of things. 
one is just understanding, you know, what makes people tick, why people, uh, yeah. why people work, uh, what's important to, to individuals across the org chart. So from, uh, you know, from the, the, the CEO who we're working with at, at BCG to the kind of frontline workers, uh, who are actually doing the real, you know, doing the real work day in and day out, uh, understanding, uh, understanding the nuances there and, and having that experience was probably pretty accretive to, to what I'm doing today and, and certainly my time on consulting private equity. Yeah. So at, at BCG, you were there two years, which is like, I feel like that's like the amount of time, like you kind of had, you got to do that <laughs> to make, to, to be able to say you did right, it. Right. Were you happy? Like what, what was your life like when you were at BCG? Cause I've, I've had friends that have, you know, gone through that world and been born for it and loved it. And I have other friends that have, you know, hated absolutely every second of it. Yeah. So what, what was it like for you? Yeah. So BCG is a really special environment. I, I think I'm, I'm fortunate to have the experience. I learned, uh, or I got a taste of operations without actually living and breathing it. Um, what, yeah. what that means is uh, my biggest account was actually a, a national grocer uh, based in California, headquartered in California one of the largest grocers in the, in the country. And uh, every day, and I was living in Manhattan at the time. So every morning I'd wake up 4 a.m. I'd be on the 6 a.m. flight out to California, I'd drive two hours to the, the client HQ, be in the office, you know, work, work all week, work directly hand in hand with our, with our client. So helping them optimize the bottom line, literally cut costs by pitting vendors against each other uh, to save on, on cost of goods, procurement savings. Um, yeah, and then I'd fly back to New York on Thursdays and be in the office on Fridays uh, and, and meet with the team, and uh, we put our heads together and think about how we can do a better job. So it was it was a really uh, interesting experience. A lot of travel at the time. I imagine that's changed in in a COVID environment. But um, what I what I realized pretty quickly is, uh, particularly when I started working on the private equity transactions at BCG, is that I wanted to to experience sitting on the other side of the table as an owner of these businesses rather than as an advisor to them and get the full kind of picture. And that was the catalyst for ultimately joining the private equity fund uh, in New York after two years at, at, at BCG. Yeah, I'm starting to notice a, a thread here that may be leading us to ARC, especially with the the pitting vendors against each other and the <laughs> procurement piece of it. I imagine you learned a lot about, I mean, just like SaaS and about how people are charging things monthly and like just forward cash flows, all that kind of stuff. Sorry, my dog's barking. I have no idea what. And I don't know if you can hear it, but there's an adorable dog barking in the background. And if, if she keeps barking, then it's going to be less adorable. I'm gonna have to <laughs> we have a couple about. dogs in the uh, office, so it might have the same with our... <laughs> Well, it's not a bad podcast if you have to get up and tell your dog to hush at some point. You know, it's not a bad thing. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm starting to notice the thread and I'm wondering if if it's leading the direction that I think it's leading. But take me forward. Take me forward into the the world of, of private equity and kind of what that stop on the train was like for you. Yeah, absolutely. So after a couple of years at BCG, got a taste of operations, did some commercial due diligence. So understanding how these businesses tick and tie. Um, from a from a private equity transaction perspective, I realized that I wanted to move uh, to the buy side, and so I ended up taking a job at a fund called Onyx Partners. It's uh, one of the older, uh, more established, uh, publicly traded private equity funds. I was in the New York office, um, and I think the the, the important uh, theme here is that they're a value oriented shop. So Onyx pays uh, you know pays cash flow multiples typically in the in the in the eight to twelve times uh, EBITDA ballpark, 
And why that's important is because I was trained uh, in finance to be a, a value-oriented investor, to be a fundamentally driven. Don, give me, I'm sorry, bro. Give me one yeah, second. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She is going. <laughs> yeah, no worries. Mad. No worries. Take your time. Hold on. Great. <laughs> What's your dog's name? Sorry. What'd you say? I asked what your what your dog's name was. Uh, it's Ray. Ray. She is a Jedi Jedi in training. <laughs> um, Currently very much in training, as you can tell, yeah. because she's not doing a very good job of controlling the force right now. Totally. The force of barking. I think I think we got some mail and I think she got very excited about it. But now we're back, baby. This is podcasting in the era of COVID. <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> All right. So I specific, you said eight, eight to 12 times EBITDA, and then she started having a conniption. So take, take me back to eight to 12 times EBITDA. <laughs> yeah. So at Onyx, they were fundamental investors and uh, I learned finance and investing uh, with an eye towards downside protection, with an eye towards cash flow modeling, uh, which is not the case across the industry and certainly not in venture capital, but it was how I was trained. And it became very important when I started ARC uh, because what we're doing is, is building fundamentally driven underwriting models uh, using customer data and cash flow data to assess and evaluate risk. Yeah. So that, I mean, the, the thread continues, right? And then from there you jump onto Apollo and it seems like maybe the time at Apollo, like you were plotting and scheming and you kind of knew <laughs> that arc was coming. You knew that the arc was coming, I guess, to get a little bit biblical on you. Uh, is that, is that true? It kind of in the back of your head starting to form as you were just kind of putting these threads together. So let me, let me take a, a half step back when I was at, when yeah. I was at Onyx, what I, what I really experienced was two things. One, I saw that underwriting more broadly. So assessing business risk, uh, is a very manual and offline process. Like we would, we, yeah. I, I experienced the, at the fundraising billions of, of dollars of both debt and equity. And one of the biggest takeaways is it requires, you know, armies of investment bankers, manual offline processes, right? And, and very analog process, inefficient processes. And that's no fault of Onyx and the bankers. It's just the way the system works. Um, and, and what the, the, the norm is in the market. Um, so, so after, after a few years at, Onyx, uh, as the learning curve started to plateau, um, I moved across the country and enrolled at Stanford GSB. And um, I and, missed and so a stop in the road. That's the half step okay. between between the experience yeah, of Apollo and the time at at Onyx. That's, I mean, that's no small half step, my friend. What was, what was Stanford like? I, I went to the, uh, the always impressive university of Missouri, Kansas city. So I'm not exactly aware of what it's like to attend a, an institution of that level. More similarities uh, and differences, about, I'm sure. I don't know. I don't know. I studied entrepreneurship, so I basically never went to class, Very so cool. I couldn't really tell you. Um, <laughs> but what was Stanford like and what, uh, did, did you, did you learn what you hope to learn? I guess my biggest question is, was it worth it? I'd say I studied entrepreneurship as well. Um, but yeah, but, so you didn't go to class either. <laughs> so, so the goal, the goal <laughs> out of the gate, and this is why it was a half step that the intent was to go back into private equity. I wanted to, 
to join uh, a fund like Apollo that was really keen on uh, on value investing and downside protection. And Apollo, the guys at Apollo wrote the book on value investing. They they invented the whole uh, distressed investing space. They're the most funda- fundamentally driven uh, shop in the world. And uh, you know, I developed a lot of a lot of respect for their their style for uh, investing and, and how sharp these guys were. And so I wanted to experience working in that type of environment. So I spent uh, a good amount of my time in the first handful of months at Stanford uh, preparing for uh, that opportunity and spent my summer working at Apollo on their industrials buyout team, uh, which was really, it was a really great learning opportunity and a great experience. And uh, you know, they ultimately offer me a, a role, a full-time role at the, at the company. And my intent after Stanford was, was to go back and was to join full-time. Uh, but the global health pandemic happened and I found myself you know, trapped in a house in Menlo Park, uh, living with uh, a guy that is now my co-founder of ARC and started tinkering on startup ideas. I'd always been passionate about entrepreneurship from uh, the <laughs> earliest days. And uh, I wanted to put uh, my finance acumen to uh, to greater what I consider to be greater use. So I uh, started working on ideas, talking to literally hundreds of founders in and around the Bay Area, and landed on this idea to offer non dilutive capital to uh, early stage growth companies. and And that was really how uh, how Arc uh, evolved and became you know, came to fruition. Yeah, I mean that's a that's a whole different kind of COVID baby. <laughs> That's uh, <laughs> living together and uh, birthed something, right. but it was a company and not a human. That's fascinating, man. And it, it's interesting to go from like the, like almost classically Berkshire-esque, you know, there's a couple puffs left in the cigar butt sort of thing in the, you know, in what you're referring to the classical value investing side of things into the you know, let's provide sustainable, non-dilutive financing to early stage companies. Like, it's just kind of a hilarious. It all makes sense in retrospect, but it's hilarious when described that way, I find. Um, so working from there, tell me about like the early days of it. Like you were seeing a lot of this. You were seeing a lot of the stuff I'm I'm sure that was like paper moving back and forth. You were seeing you you worked basically your whole career watching inefficiencies, it sounds like, and basically started a company to be like connect those gaps. So where where exactly did you start and how manual was it when you started? Yeah, it's a great question. So what I saw the inefficiencies in the market in New York, at the the, the largest transaction size. I mean, we're talking multi-billion dollar leverage buyout transactions. It, it makes sense in some ways for, for those transactions, those deals to move very slowly or pushing billions of dollars of paper around. But what the key learning was when I, when I relocated from Manhattan to Palo Alto is, and I started talking to, to dozens and eventually hundreds of software founders, is that there is very limited access to capital uh, in Silicon Valley beyond VC. Uh, so yeah. that was the biggest, one of the biggest learnings for me. One of the biggest surprises is the, the limited accessibility um, of, of non-dilutive capital, of other, of other sources of capital that are just so ubiquitous on Wall Street and in New York. Um, and these are, we're talking about premium companies with high quality recurring sources of revenue, higher quality companies with a lot of the industrial assets that we were looking at in, in, uh, in my finance days. And so I kind of had this aha moment where uh, there's a huge gap in the market. 
and the banks aren't serving it and the VCs aren't serving it. And, uh, and so it created a, a really unique opportunity for me to step up and, and fill that need. It's really interesting. I'm, I'm Googling, right? Arthur Rock. That's who I was thinking of. Did you, uh, have you ever heard the name Arthur Rock? Educate me. So this man, there's a group of them. There's Arthur Rock, Tom Perkins, Don Valentine. These are like the, the godfathers basically of VC. And I can't remember the name of this damn documentary right now, but it's on, I want to say it's on Netflix and it's just like the, the history of VC basically. And as I'm listening to you talk, it's really funny because so Don Valentine was like, uh, he was a Silicon Valley guy. He kind of built Silicon Valley. Tom Perkins was a Silicon Valley guy, but Arthur Rock was unique in that he was a wall street guy that saw that like had access to this capital. Like there's like, he basically is like the sixties version of you is kind of what I'm realizing. <laughs> he, he had access to this capital. Like he saw what was going on in wall street. He saw what was going on in New York. And then he basically just went West, right? Like the, he, even in the movie he says the quote, like go West young man. And he just took the capital and the connections he had from out East took him West and built what we know today as the venture capital ecosystem in Silicon Valley, right? Like Don Valentine was the one that founded Sequoia. So like the, these are the, the godfathers truly Tom Perkins, I think is the, uh, Oh, I can't remember the name of the firm now. Kleiner Perkins. I'm an idiot. Of course it's Kleiner Perkins. Um, so it's like all of these firms have come together and like built what is today this thing, but they were doing it with VC. Right. And basically it sounds like a, a similar kind of wave, but in debt financing and in just this, this next kind of level of a way to fund companies in an even more beneficial way for founders, which is exactly what they were doing. And it's just, it's, yeah, it's wild. It was like 50 years later and I hadn't thought about it until I just heard you tell the story that way, but it's, it, the overlap is palpable. Yeah, I'll, t I'll take it. Uh, and it makes sense. It's, it's been really interesting to see, you know, through these conversations with founders, the, the, the prevalence of venture capital here in Silicon Valley, I mean, it's, it's everywhere. It's, it, it, it's inextricably intertwined uh, here oh, yeah. in, in Palo Alto. I now live in, in San Francisco, just meeting with founders. And when they need access to capital to grow, uh, they have one place to turn at VC and that makes a ton of sense. And, and VCs uh, are doing really incredible work in, in lots of ways, but um, it's really not one size fits all there. There's right. It's, it's important right. for founders to understand that there's other types of capital out there to reduce your overall cost of capital uh, by preserving ownership in your business, right. By avoiding unnecessary dilution to accelerate growth to extend the runway, to pair with or complement your equity on balance sheet to drive more efficient growth and preserve more of your business in the long run. Yeah. So, so listeners don't think that we're going like so far left or right or whatever. So that they don't think we're too far sure. out on a limb sure. here. We should also, we should also explain that you've taken BC, right? Like as, as much as we're talking Absolutely. about like the, the, you know, both sides of this, like you went through YC, you got clock tower, you got Bain, you have a lot of like some of the, the top tier venture capital firms on your cap table what were those conversations like? Like, were, were they combative at any point? I would imagine VCs are like, oh, thank God, this needs to exist. Like, please bring this to the world. Uh, but were any of them like, ah, you're coming to eat my lunch? Like, were there any hard conversations? Not really. I think the venture capital industry more broadly is really adopting 
this this product that the adoption yeah. we're, we're seeing incredible adoption from VC channel partners. They realize that our product is just another tool in the toolkit to help unlock efficient growth for their portfolio companies. And uh, we're seeing VCs introduce their portfolio companies to Arc to access additional capital without diluting existing investors themselves. Right. So not only is it helpful to founders. But it's also helpful to existing investors who have an ownership stake in these businesses and want their portfolio companies to access more liquidity without taking on incremental dilution ahead of a future fundraising round. So uh, we're finding that um, you know we're partnering with VCs and um, we're developing really strong relationships uh, across Y Combinator and a handful of other top VCs in the market, including the names you mentioned. Yeah, I mean, cash flow, cash flow, cash flow. It makes a lot of sense. So tell me about the process of raising, I mean, there's not a lot of folks that have, you know, two fundraisers on their crunch base and have 161 million in total funding on there. <laughs> and one, one, one's a seed round and one's a debt financing round, which obviously for you all makes a lot of sense. But what was it like raising the debt uh, instrument being the stage that you're at? Like, imagine that took some, if anyone was ready to do it based on your history, it was probably you, but what was that like? Yeah, so between myself and one of my, co-founders we'd raised or been involved with firms at the time who had raised literally tens of billions of dollars of debt and equity. And so capital raising is not foreign to me, especially, uh, especially debt and especially at, at scale. Um, and, and that was really helpful in this process. We, we, we ran the process like you would in an investment banking uh, auction process for a credit facility. So went out to 15 credit funds, uh, collected dozen term sheets and, and ultimately landed on uh, a really strong partner. I mean, Adelia has been a fantastic uh, partner for ARC, been very flexible, they're scalable. It's a $7 billion credit fund. <clears throat> and we, we raised, uh, we secured $150 million of committed and uncommitted capital split up into three tranches at, at really great terms. And what I tell founders uh, when I'm meeting with them, uh, to uh, about um, about the potential of partnering with Arc, I said I went out and, and did this capital raise, you know, this this credit raise that you don't have to. Uh, went out went yeah. out and spent, you know, <laughs> the, the five to six months it takes to spin up a credit facility uh, and negotiate the docs and incur all these legal expenses, so that these software founders don't have to go through that process and don't have to to under you know uh, to, to undertake that that very distracting and manual and analog analog process I was describing earlier. And so that's, um, that's one of the major use cases of, of ARC. It's taking what is traditionally a very distracting process for management teams, a very time consuming process and doing, doing it in a matter of days or even, you know, minutes. Uh, that's, that's one of the clear value props that we're providing to the, you know, the finance teams at these software uh, startups. Yeah. How long, how long did like from, from getting those 15 institutions to like having the debt financing secured, how long did that take for, for you? Yeah. So I spent a couple of months meeting with all the investors, collecting term sheets, negotiating terms. And then once you sign the term sheet, that's when the real work starts. So you, you bring in, you bring in an army of lawyers on both sides and you negotiate terms. Uh, you negotiate what's called a credit box. And what you have to do is, yep. is, is figure out how much capital, ARC needs to put down, right? How many, how many cents in the dollar does ARC need to put down for every ARC advance that we originate? Uh, so, mm -hmm. so for every dollar that I give a software startup, how many cents do we have to give off our, out of our equity, off our balance sheet? 
So that's one of the key, the key items that you need to negotiate. Uh, the other, of course, is, you know, headline uh, interest or headline price. So what's your what's your actual cost of capital? And that's going to put a floor on on the rate that we can ultimately lend uh, to our customers. And then finally, and, and most importantly, it's really around flexibility. So who can we serve? How quickly can we do it? Um, and, and really how flexible is our investment mandate? The broader, the better. We don't want to be encumbered by unnecessary restrictions in our, in our credit box. So that if there's high quality companies that are high growth, we want to be able to lean in and ultimately serve them and, and help them grow and help them get to the next stage. And so that was one of the key, uh, the key items that we were, uh, that we negotiated early and, and, and focused on throughout the process. All in, I'd say it took about five months. There's a company in Kansas City uh, that does does something, I guess, somewhat akin to what you do, but in a very, very manual fashion. They're called Novel Growth Partners, and it's basically it's similar to Arc, except it's like like a piece of paper shovels across a desk. A person looks at it and decides, you know, does this make sense? Does this not make sense? You know, it's a, it's a very man, like literally manual. Like there's a man and a Yule and they are doing the thing, you know, <laughs> uh, versus potentially like kind of the way that I imagine the arc product being a lot more automated and whatnot. So t- talk me through like the actual kind of, you know, X's and O's user experience, like how fast can someone go from, Oh, this is arc to, you know, securing some financing. Talk me through that process. Yeah, definitely. There's, there's one thing about moving really fast and there's another thing about moving really fast while taking calculated and appropriate risk. Sure. And the latter is only unlocked through technology. Uh, what we're doing is playing this broader theme around increasing uh, data accessibility, increasing accessibility of financial data for value add providers. And ARC falls in that bucket because we're providing a really attractive financial instrument to these software founders who need incremental liquidity beyond very expensive equity. So how does it work? Uh, onboarding takes literally two minutes. Uh, you'll log in, you're the, the CFO of a Series B software company. You'll integrate your banking, billing, accounting, API integrations in the back end. All of that raw data feeds into our underwriting model and we produce funding terms. The actual model itself, uh, we use machine learning to strip out financing from operating inflows and outflows from the banking transaction data. So we're literally tagging every single banking transaction on a historical 24 month basis and stripping out the financing charges to just leave the operating uh, operating expenses and, and revenue inflows. And uh, using that, that data, we can get a really good sense of true net cash burn on a historical basis. Relative cash and balance sheet, we get a good sense of runway. And then using the accounting data, uh, as well as the subscription billing data, we can get a really fine-tuned uh, uh, perspective on operating metrics. So net revenue retention, month-over-month growth, revenue concentration. We look at lots and lots of different variables that inform our model are all weighted uh, to assess probability of default and make our underwriting terms programmatically uh, based on all of those inputs in our model. And that's what you just described in a bank takes three weeks. How long does that take with ARC? You said two minutes? Three months more likely at a bank with <laughs> I was, ARC. Let me be take. generous to my banking friends. Come on now. <laughs> let me be generous. Sorry. <laughs> we, yeah. So the, the underwriting process is, is programmatic. We're producing an ARC score instantaneously 
we have a manual process where we can convene as a, as a credit committee and review each check above a certain threshold, but the terms are produced on the back end uh, in a highly automated manner. As the, as the raw financial data flows yeah. through our underwriting model. Yeah. And what's the, what's, you know, the perfect, perfect customer. I mean, you kind of mentioned the series B SaaS startup. I'm guessing there's a certain amount of revenue that's, that's required to make this even worth a conversation. And there's probably a certain amount of revenue at which point you're raising your own debt financing. So what is that? What's like that sweet spot? Yeah. The key, uh, qualification for a customer is that they're re- uh, generating revenue. So we work with high growth revenue generating software businesses. And if you have growth and you have revenue, uh, then we'll find a way to, to work with you and to provide you, you know, this attractive non-dilutive capital product. That's awesome. Cool. Cool. I mean, I, I guess it makes sense. I've, in my head, there was some kind of like, you know, minimum, but it seems like this is actually the kind of product that you benefit a lot more at an early stage in a lot of ways than maybe not a lot more in an early stage, but you, there's definitely some benefit in freeing up that cash flow at an early stage and being able to have, have that balance sheet, have a little more flexibility. We have companies with 140 million plus of ARR. We have companies with 300 K of ARR. Yeah. It's, it's really a broad mandate and, and we'll find a way to structure a product uh, that fits your specific use case. Yeah. We have companies that need $5 million of weekly liquidity to invest in their business on a reoccurring basis. Um, and that have tens of millions of, of ARR and they need some additional liquidity to fund some type of working capital need. We can fill that gap. We have early stage companies that are going on to raise their series A or series B round who want an additional three, six plus months of runway. So their back's not against the wall and they can fundraise from a position of strength. And, and ultimately wow. raise a fifty percent higher valuation. We fill both use cases, and, uh, and and I feel like every day we're developing a new use case for this product uh, and innovating uh, the financial product with our customers. I have never. That's fascinating. I never thought about the extending runway piece. That's really. Oh, yeah. That's really. Of course. I mean, it's obvious. Duh. I just hadn't thought of it. And now that you now that you say it, like, of course. And that's like one of the most founder friendly things that could possibly exist in the world. Like the number of VCs that I love all of you, everyone. I love all of you. Um, but the number of VCs that will slow play a fundraise just to get, you know, get what they want out of the fundraise to, you know, basically, basically wait until the coffers are dry and then, oh, this is the valuation I'm going to give you. Take it or leave it, fucker. Like that, uh, that goes out the window a little bit with this kind of a conversation. That's really interesting. This this week alone, I'm meeting with uh, a Tiger Globalback company, a Sequoia back company. Both have 10 million plus on balance sheet. One is 20, one is 10. They have different burn rates. They have six months and nine months of runway, respectively. Arc is coming in, giving them million dollars per month, which is effectively matching their burn rate right. to give them an incremental in incremental three to six months of runway, assuming that that they maintain the fundamentals and they continue to grow the top line, we'll continue to fund them. Um, that's pushing out there. That's delaying their Series B fundraises for, for, for both companies. Um, and ultimately, that's accretive to the existing investors on a cap table. That's accretive to Tiger. That's accretive to Sequoia. 
because they can weather this storm, this turmoil we're seeing in the public markets, A, and B, uh, they're extending the runway and, and ultimately hitting additional milestones. They're explosive growth company, B2B SaaS companies, and they'll raise at 30 to 50% uh, higher valuations respectively, assuming they continue to, to hit their milestones that, that we're underwriting. That's so obvious and so fascinating now that you explained it that way. I'm, I'm really glad that we happened to just touch on that because that is a, a thing that pisses me off beyond belief. And I love, I love the idea of being able to solve it at least occasionally with something like this. I love that. Our product will cost them 5% to convert that future revenue into upfront capital. If they, if they took the dilution today, we're talking about tens of millions of dollars yeah. of, of cost. Uh, just a dilution. Yeah. So it, it really is a, a, a no-brainer for some of these companies, particularly in this in this public market environment. Thanks for joining the conversation, folks. Hope you enjoyed our time with Don at Arc. Jump into the show notes to learn more and find out about Arc and Don. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, review, and all the other things I'm supposed to remind you to do in your favorite podcast app. And if you want our weekly, becoming monthly, becoming quarterly emails, go to forfintechsake.com and subscribe there. Until next time, folks, stay healthy, keep your head high, and you are now free to move about the country.